associate producer and that and then uh years later uh after about i don't know maybe three or four years i got tired of doing the show and so he took over for a couple of years and then when the pandemic kicked in i wanted to get back into it so we started switching off weeks because it was the only way we could do do the show and crank it out every week we'd never done done it weekly before so it, we found the secret formula very cool. Well, I think you guys are the masters of it all. Uh, Three hundred and plus shows. Oh yeah, we, we've we've got it under our belt anyway. We have just about as many listeners. <laughs> you're you're doing cartoons and you're doing just the circuitash. Are you doing live shows too? Uh, I don't do live shows uh, unless somebody calls me about it. But uh, I do my day job. I do. I'm in the branding world still and. Uh, I uh, work for a company called Landor and Fitch and uh, do naming and nomenclature and messaging and stuff like that. Since we're recording, should we fire this up? Consider it fired up, Mark. And I believe and understand you two know each other. I will become acquainted with Mark through the process. Um, do you want to lead off or do you want me to screw up the opening again? Uh, you're good at screwing it up. That's our tradition. <laughs> Here we go. Take one. Hello and welcome to the Old and in the Way comedy podcast with Bob and Mark. And today's guest is Mark Hershen, the executive producer of the outstanding comedy soundcast, Succotash. Thank you. Pleasure to be here Great with you guys. Pleasure to meet you, Mark. Bob, we've met before. Yes, indeed. I was intrigued uh, that you went to Redwood High. I did. I'm a proud graduate uh, of Redwood High School, class of 1976. I'm impressed. And I um, know you're younger than Robin was, but I worked with him for three years at the Trident as busboys before anything came of his career. So No kidding. Yeah, I think he graduated about four years before I did at 72. Maybe uh, earlier than that, actually. I started in 72 and he wasn't there. So it must have been like 68, I think he graduated. Yeah, I think you're right. Actually, uh, class is 69. Okay. Which I was a part of, but oh. uh, I was in a car accident and ended up spending a year in and out of hospitals and graduated in the 70s. So oh, actually, wow. 1970. Oh, wow. Sorry to hear and about then that. Moved at least out you to got Sa out. Sausalito in um, 1973, got a job at the Trident, and this guy named Robin Williams trained me as a busboy. No kidding. And three years later, um, we were working together at the Sausalito Food Company, and one day he didn't show up for work, and I turned on the television that night, and I was watching the Richard Pryor Variety Hour, and they introduced him as one of his writers, and we all were sitting there going, well, I guess he's not coming to work tomorrow. <laughs> Well, that's a good way to write write up a resignation letter, I guess. And I was in uh, Guaymas, which is, I forget what it's called. Oh, I guess it's called Guaymas in downtown Tiburon, mm -hmm. a Spanish-Mexican restaurant. And I walked in there, and there were these attractive women sitting at the bar. And with no intention on my part, I sit, sat next to them. And this woman looks over at me and says, don't even try. And I'm like... <laughs> So all of a sudden, Robin walks in. Mark and Mindy is uh, high on the charts. And he says, can I join you? 
we take a table, some other people we know join us. And out of nowhere, the two gorgeous women show up and want to join our party. Oh. And one of them goes to Robin and says, look, I'll give you $10 for a kiss. And he says to her, how about 20 for a hickey? <laughs> but um, tell me more about you. And you did improv with him. I did. Uh, I did years, years and years later. Um, I mean, I did improv with him in the uh, mid 80s. Um, I had been running a comedy club in Seattle, the Comedy Underground, uh, from 82 to 85 um, for the the Foxes, John and Ann Fox, uh, who ran Fox Productions out of Mill Valley. And they booked the Punchline and a number of other clubs. And they bought into this club in Seattle, a sports club and opened a comedy room. And I went up there, I'd been assisting them in San Francisco, went up there for three years. And then when I came down, I had learned how to do improv through um, uh, theater sports, which is wow. uh, sort of a team, a team version of uh, or a game version of, of doing theater games. And uh, so when I came down, they wanted me to be part of the Comedy Underground improv group, which was the house group at the Punchline on Monday nights. That's a big compliment. I was a bartender at the Punchline for a year. Oh, no kidding. Okay. So uh, the way the, the show ran, it was sort of like a little version of SNL. They would have a stand, local stand-up come in on Mondays and do like a 10-minute set. And then the group would come up and start doing improv, and the host would stay and do improv with us. And Robin was frequently the host uh, because he was good friends with everybody in the group, Debbie Durst and Greg Proops and Michael McShane and all these guys. Uh, and so, yeah, I got, that's where I started doing improv with him. And, and, and at the time, uh, he was always kind of funny to do improv with because he was such a powerhouse. I distinctly remember doing, uh, a Shakespeare scene with everybody in the cast and he was super good at it. I mean, you know, Juilliard trained and the whole thing. And, uh, but, but he was also, you know, renowned as wanting to take the stage and he literally did. He ended up killing everybody in the scene. Uh, and so everyone was lying about on the stage. I was the last to go because I was terrible at Shakespeare. So I would just kind of nod my head whenever he said anything. And so I was the last to go. And then there he was delivering his final soliloquy, striding around our fallen corpses ah. on the stage. And then years later, he'd become such a great giving improviser. Um, I remember doing a show at New George's, which was this, you know, kind of dive bar performance place, downtown San Rafael. And it was just a pick, kind of a pickup improv. Somebody called me and said, hey, come on down. We're doing improv. So I show up and it's all the kind of regulars I hung out with. And uh, then Robin showed up and there was maybe 20 people in the house to watch the show. But as soon as Robin got on stage, you saw the cell phones come out. People, oh, start wow. text, people start texting and it was wow. a packed house within a half an hour. That's awesome. Um, but um, he'd, he'd become a very giving improviser. There was no more of the kind of, let me kill everyone on stage. It was much generous, uh, much more of a generous uh, Robin Williams years later. I think as he matured, he was so aware uh, and sensitive and empathized with people in ways that nobody ever knew. Yeah, I always found one on one that he was possibly the best listener I've ever met in my life. Mm. Uh, he seemed to pay attention, make you feel important, and just seemed like a very normal, sweet person. 
Yeah, he was a really good but I'm guy. I'm so happy you mentioned Debbie Durst. Oh, sure. I think she's a powerhouse. I think she is brilliant. I have seen her just take audiences and leave them laughing yeah. at their tracks. Debbie is uh, an underappreciated and underrated uh, performer, whether it's sketch or improv. I mean, she doesn't really do stand up, but everything else she does. And now she, you know, she directs community theater now. Uh, has been doing shows in Pacifica and down in Half Moon Bay. And um, she did, uh, she's directed shows in Marin County. Uh, but she is super funny. I mean, I, and I've seen her get laughs doing not literally doing nothing. And she will get laughs. There was a there was an improv structure called concerto where everybody would come out and get a suggestion from the audience. And oftentimes it was like you would get a suggestion for an emotion and then something that would make noise. You would get a suggestion uh, as a household appliance or as an animal or something like that. And she would just come out and ask for a, uh, uh, usually some sort of mental condition. Whoa. And so oftentimes it would be like comatose. Oh my God. <laughs> and so she would just stand there in the group and she would slowly just start drooling. Oh God. <laughs> never say anything. And whoever was kneeling in the line in front of her, of course, knew this was coming. <laughs> but yeah, she's she's terrific. She's terrific. I also had to share. Uh, do you go ahead, Bob? No, I was wondering if is Will able to perform these days? You know, I heard him do a show. Um, I think it was 20. Was it 2021? Or 20? I think it was after COVID. Uh, yeah, because he had somewhat recovered from his uh, stroke and he was doing a show with uh, former mayor Willie Brown. And I think it was in January of 2021 and his voice was weak, but his mind was sharp. Okay. I haven't spoken to him since October of 2019 when he did have his stroke, uh, but plenty of people have. I've tried to call him a few times, but, um, you know, I just either don't get an answer, goes to voicemail or what have you. And um, he's still in a, as the last I heard, he's still in a facility to try oh, and get no. his mobility back. Wow. Uh, we wish him well. Yeah, he was a regular feature on, on our Succotash show. Uh, we had a, when he, when I first started the show, he said, hey, I'm doing these pieces I send out to, you know, newspapers, these little columns. And I was thinking of doing audio, an audio version. I said, well, I'll play anything you got. So he would send it to me every week. And I dubbed them the burst o durst. Oh, nice. Nice. And and so uh yeah, we we played them faithfully, you know, as soon as they came in, it instantly was on the show. So he is terribly missed, both by by me, the comedy community, and also uh the Succotash audience. Wow. Um, well, I have watched or listened to four episodes of Succotash. Okay. And one of them you have is uh reach out and clip someone. Yes. In the early 70s, my dad, who at one time had an exhibit at the Smithsonian's for his contributions to television advertising, uh, was approached by AT&T to come out with a tagline for their long distance campaign. I think it was 1974 and wrote, reach out and touch. Someone. Get the heck out of here. So isn't, that was the first clip I listened to. Isn't that funny? And that, and that's funny. That's funny because I mean, that's one of the things I do in my job is taglines. Um, 
So that's a, a funny connection as well. At another time, I can expound on this, but today is your moment. Uh, <laughs> we're celebrating you. Well, thanks. So, how did how did the, the the podcast start? What was your inspiration and intent? My inspiration was uh, lots of comic friends of mine were beginning to do podcasts, and I wanted to do a podcast. I figured, hey, this is you know the bar is low for entry. It's super simple to get equipment and get going which it still is for those, those, those listeners who think that it's, wow, how did they get that thing together? It, it is the basics of it is pretty darn simple. Uh, and at the time it was even easier, but the problem was I was trying to find a format that I could think of that somebody wasn't doing. There was a lot of comics talking to other comics and there were comics talking about specific genres or doing like sports or something. And I said, well, I've got to find a niche because everybody's doing stuff. And I hit on this idea of, well, my friends are all doing podcasts. Why don't I help their podcasts? So uh, from the beginning, Succotash, the, what started out as the comedy podcast podcast and is now the comedy soundcast soundcast, um, was primarily designed to play clips of comedy podcasts uh, so I could help promote my friend's shows. Um, and in the beginning, I used to ask for permission. And after about the third show, people go, why are you asking permission to actually publicize people's shows? Aren't, wouldn't they be happy? And I said, well, probably. So I started just clipping and playing. And sure enough, people are just delighted that somebody cares enough about their show to play a clip from it. Absolutely. And you uh, covered some interesting grounds and um, apparently sports recently. Sports recently. I am not a sports fan, as I stayed on the on that episode. Um, but I I faithfully clipped four comedy comedy soundcasts about sports, um, and freely admit I have no idea what I'm listening to or what this is about. But I hope the sports fans do enjoy it. Um, but yeah, that's fun. Uh, in that episode, I called a friend of mine, a guy named uh, goes by the name Jabs. His name's Jason McNamara in Canberra, Australia. And uh, he had a couple of podcasts years ago and I call him up. We talk all the time. Um, but I called him up specifically for this and asked if he would do a commentary about the, uh, the cricket soundcast that I'd clip. Cause I said, I don't know cricket at all. I don't know what these guys are even talking about. So he ran me off a little review of it, which was pretty funny. But anyway, that's, that was the genesis of how I got started. And it's also an interview show. I've had a lot of comics, you know, on as either co-hosts uh, who I'll say, hey, if you like podcasts, tell me, you know, four of them, we'll clip them. We can talk about them. Uh, a lot of comics don't have time to listen or they got one or two they listen to. So I'll just have them on as guests. I've had Dana Carvey on like a half a dozen times. Um, and because uh, he and I are friends. And is that his brother who's on your support Team? Yes. Yeah. Well, he he did the theme to uh, Succotash. Nice. I I found a, an old jazz song called Succotash, and having been in radio for a number of years, I was keenly aware of well, somebody might someday come looking for me to pay them money for using this music. <laughs> so I sent it to Scott, and I said, "Hey, Scott, can you make me something that sounds a lot like this, but nothing libelously like this?" <laughs> so the the uh, theme to our show is what the results and so yeah he's he's credited as being our music director although he hasn't really you know hasn't done anything for 11 years but we still play his his theme song it's good 
Um, and do you remember the Hannah and Barbara character whose tagline was suffering succotash? Of course, of course. Uh, Sylvester, the cat. Um, um, I think it was Snagglepuss. No, Snagglepuss was exit stage left. Thank you. Okay, well, I'll defer to your... Uh... Yeah, suffering succotash. And, and played out it's the funny oh, thing you're is right, you know, you're right sylvester i'm yeah, sorry so so i'm in so i've been in the branding business for 30 something years and people keep going well, why did you name your show something that most people can't spell <laughs> <laughs> i said well i guess i'm not a very good brander i don't know but uh, uh i've played that succotash joke out for so there was a stretch of about two years where i played random recipes for succotash after the close to the show i'd go on youtube and find somebody who'd done a recipe for succotash and I would just get the audio off of it and just play that at the end. And then I had some friends of mine that did impressions and they started doing celebrity versions of succotash recipes. Nice. So you can find an Eddie Vedder succotash recipe. Really? And yeah. And a few other, a few other celebrities. <laughs> and you have merch, you have merchandise. I do. Uh, we haven't really kind of spruced up the merch store in a while, but uh, there is, you can get a hat or, or a tote bag or, coffee mug things like that but uh you're you're bringing it up reminds me i need to uh refresh things because we've slightly updated our logo over the years and uh, i've not done our merch any justice unfortunately well you have merch it's a good a big deal these days <laughs> well, I, woo commerce and everything I, I have a question that i think you're a good person to ask uh yeah bob what do you think is the state of comedy particularly in, in the bay area and and in, in general I, mean, I know some people think that that reality is so absurd that it's hard to do comedy uh, both you guys have been around for the san francisco heyday we're talking about robin and yeah the, uh, we, we, you know and COVID obviously has been affected but i'm just curious what you, your impression is of, of where where things are at now that's a great question. I often, when I have comics on as guests, I often ask them the same question because it definitely has changed. Uh, I think the, the age of Trump for one thing has sort of changed the sensitivity towards types of comedy. Um, Dana Carvey, for instance, uh, when he does his show is, uh, intensely aware of sort of the political leanings of the audience that he's playing to. And so he has to walk a real tightrope because, you know, he can really kind of step in it if he says the wrong thing, either about the right or the left. Uh, it's become a very sensitive sort of topic or subject matter. Uh, and then it's just everything across the board has become more sensitive. There's a lot more political correctness. And the and the bar to entry of comedy has changed. It used to be you got to get out. You got to go do the open mics. You've got to craft your material. And now because of things like YouTube and TikTok and all these other things, people are being discovered who don't have the traditional comedy chops. Yeah. And you couldn't book them to do an hour or an hour and a half long show somewhere. But if you needed somebody on a TV show, like an America's Got Talent to do five minutes of some kind of, you know, specifically type type of stand up, you can find somebody that nobody's ever heard of before, but may have a million listener, a, mu a million hits yeah. on YouTube. Um, I remember years ago, uh, Dana, Dana Carvey and I were trying to come up with some project ideas and we were going to do like a, an impression competition show. And we said, well, rather than go after the traditional guys, there's so many people doing impressions now on YouTube. 
why doesn't that become our audition plate? And we don't even have to have these guys come into a studio until we narrow it down. We'll just play their videos because it's basically public domain. Yeah. You know, nobody's making any money off those things, except that they get enough hits. So they're happy for the, um, but it, uh, we ran into a, another competing show that was coming out and we just said, ah, it's too much work. <laughs> but to, to get back to your question, um, comedy is in a, it's in an interesting kind of tough spot, but I don't think it's ever going to ever be something that we see get eclipsed. It's all just a matter of adaptation. I think it's coming back because the hypersensitivity Jerry Seinfeld doesn't like to play colleges because they're so politically correct. Yeah. And doesn't um, Dana Carvey have a podcast with David Spade? He does. He has a fly on the wall with David Spade where they interview specifically people that have either been on SNL or guested or musical guests on SNL. He also has a podcast that's, currently sort of on the back burner he did a few episodes did 20 episodes of something called fantastic which was just sort of him and a co-host and he's actually then he's also got some narrative podcast a, a narrative show coming out that conan o'brien's producing that he wrote with his two sons oh, it's great. kind of a uh uh twilight zone he guest hosted on jimmy kimmel a couple of weeks ago where i picked that up and he seemed very comfortable with doing the podcast like it was a format that's comfortable that they both are really enjoying. He said their only problem is they've run out of SNL people to interview and they're gonna to have to start interviewing other people. <laughs> that's um, funny. But John Cleese was here in Santa Barbara a couple of weeks ago and he made a comment about all this hypersensitivity that's going on as he suggested in the age of Trump. Mm. He said that there's no such thing as a woke joke. <laughs> That's funny and probably true. Probably true. I mean, I could see people attempting to do woke humor. Uh, and I think you get more laughs making jokes about woke humor than actually using woke humor. It needs to be uh, addressed. It does. It, it, it does. It's, I don't think it's a healthy thing right now. I think the hypersensitivity is driving people in more of a divisive than cohesive uh, way. Definitely agree. Uh, the interesting thing is watching the comedians who have to adapt. Uh, COVID, of course, put a big damper on live performance for a couple of years. And it was interesting to hear comics talk about, well, I don't, my old material doesn't seem to make, it doesn't feel good to me to be doing it. It seems like it's just completely tone deaf at the moment, but I don't know what to make fun of. Well, I love Sam Kennison, and back in the day, he was the comics comic. Definitely. And yet today, um, I don't think he'd last 30 seconds. It would be tough. No, uh, he would be tough. I, I, I tend to think Carlin would be more appropriate than ever, but do you guys agree? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And have you seen his, uh, I guess, two-part documentary that came out on CNN or HBO? I haven't caught it yet. It's supposed to be it's, good. It's HBO. It's yeah, it's excellent. It really yeah. just sucks you back into how significant he is. Yeah, it's interesting. I um I became friends with uh with his daughter um and uh, she has her own podcast and her own life. She's not a comedian, but uh, she was a guest on my show and uh, I hung out with her at her house at a party a couple of times. Um, 
and uh, Kelly is, and she has a, had a one woman show that was touring just before COVID hit. Um, and she developed a whole interesting perspective on her father because, you know, to, to her, it was just her father and she wasn't really cued into his humor until years later. Um, and so she has a very interesting perspective on it, but I think she's definitely of the mind that were he around today, he'd certainly have something to say. Uh, the interesting thing to, about his humor was the last couple of specials he did before he passed away were really dark and bitter, uh, which was just interesting to see his humor kind of take that slide because he'd lost his wife and he had cancer and all that sort of stuff made him look at the sort of darker side of things. And even though he attacked religion, there was a religious aspect to him, um, which comes out in the mm. documentary. And his daughter is a, plays a huge part in the documentary. Yeah, interesting. And interesting. she's kind of giving you the background. We all see him in front of the cameras or on uh, vinyl. Yeah. But in real life, um, he was a normal person, normal feelings, loved his wife, went through uh, hell to um, help her out. Yeah, yeah. I'm check, guys, just because we're too cheap to pay for premium Zoom. We have 10 minutes left. Uh, do you think because of podcasting and uh, and TikTok and all that, that there's a future for live, you know, comedy clubs and things like that? Oh, sure. I don't think those things will ever go away. But just like, you know, vaudeville was eclipsed by the nightclubs and the nightclubs were eclipsed by the comedy clubs, it'll take it probably be a different format. I mean, comedy clubs are still there the network of comedy clubs they used to have is all sort of fractionalized and broken up. But it's sort of like uh, route 66. Once the freeway system came in, you know, it's still there, but it's all in bits and pieces now. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the, uh, the online element, whether it's videos on YouTube or podcasts have presented comedians with a couple of entirely new mediums and mediums that don't require them to get past gatekeepers. If you're going to play a comedy club, you still had to audition to get in, you know, even an open mic, you'd have to put your name in a bucket, bucket and hope they picked you. Now on YouTube, you just put your stuff up. And if people like it, they're going to find it and spread it around. If they don't like it, well, your video is up there in perpetuity. And podcasts are a lot the same way because, again, there's, you know, you can make a deal with a Spotify and be exclusive to them. Or you can get somebody, you know, we're, you know, my, our, our show is carried by liberated syndication or Libsyn and, you know, I pay 20 bucks a month and we put the thing up and they spread it everywhere. You, you decide what distribution points you want. So we, I mean, we're on YouTube, even though we don't have a video component to our podcast and you can hear the audio. Um, and there's nobody saying you can't swear, you can't do this, you can't do that. Yeah. If you go on Apple, you're supposed to, you know, click the boxes that say you've got material that you know, is not, not suitable for certain ages and things like that. But barring that, the field is wide open. Uh, of course, the price to be paid for a wide open field is how do you punch through the noise so somebody's going to find you? But it sounds like it's more egalitarian than it ever was, probably. I think I, so. I think you find your audience. It's unlikely that you're going to be the Beatles and everybody loves you. But if you can carve out a significant portion, uh, that's you built, you build your pay base and go from there. You get your audience. And then once in a while you manage to have a voice or people find your voice and you do become somebody that's, you know, has a huge following. I mean, if you look at someone like a Dane cook, 
who's you know not the not the popular comic he once was but he was the one who latched on to myspace early on and developed a quarter million followers within a couple of months and was huge for years and could have played arenas and things like that and it was because he was one of the first to go i'm going to leverage this medium now you can't do it now everybody's out there but somebody's going to find the next key the next golden ticket figure out what it takes to get capture the eyeballs and capture the eardrums and <clears throat> become super popular kevin hart is selling out stadiums there you go and he's doing movies and he's doing tv shows and he's doing a podcast and he's covering every conceivable way too much money <laughs> say some say some uh but it, it's actually a really good time to be a comedian i think if you've got something to say just like always if you're a comedian that is either terribly um uh alike as far as what other people are saying uh or derivative uh, of someone else, then, you know, you're going to get what you deserve, which is, you know, nobody paying attention to you. But if you've got a unique voice or a unique perspective on something, now you've got a way to get it out there. And nobody, no, no network executive can say, we don't like your show. Cause it doesn't matter whether they like your show or not. Right. You might not get on television, but then television doesn't get the ratings it once got either. Interesting. It's done that for, for musicians and for comics. Yeah. The, 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 the actual golden ticket that's still left is how do I make money at this? Yeah. Well, yeah. Right. The musicians are finding that out. The comics are finding that out. Yeah. I've got a lot of people watching my YouTube videos, but you know, no one's paying me for them. Yeah. Some things will never change. Well, <laughs> True. One True. other topic I wanted to cover before we run out of time. Um, I'm, I love your, com your, your uh, cartoons, your comic, your, your strip comic things. Oh, thank you. I'm, I was curious how, if you could talk about, how that compares to trying to be funny, you know, in not so much real life, but funny as a performer or funny on the radio, when you reduce humor to to a graphic. What's, yeah. What's the thought process? Well, you're I'm doing a single panel cartoon for the Half Moon Bay Review weekly newspaper. Mo, you know, half the time the editor will give me what his editorial is, and I'll, he goes, "Hey, if you can think of something to spin off with this, go ahead." And then I also look at the budget of what stories are coming out the next week that the other writers are working on. So I'll try and find something there. So I always like if somebody's reading the newspaper and they see the cartoon, they go, oh, I just read a story about that. And look, now here's a funny thing about it. But sometimes and probably half the time, there's nothing in the paper that kind of rings my chimes as far as a cartoon. So I just kind of free form what's in the news, what's going on, what, you know, what's the weather, whatever. And I always kind of go back to when I was a kid, I would always look for a kind of a cartoon I want to cut out and put on my bulletin board or put uh, on my locker or put on it on the refrigerator. And it might be there for a week. It might be there for a month. Who knows? Maybe it'll be there for years. But can I come up with something that, that tickles somebody's funny bone enough that they go, wow, that's really clever. I'd love to see that. Um, and it's so funny because when I the, when I do get to Half Moon Bay, which I used to live there for a couple of years, and I still go there now occasionally, I'll run into somebody and, uh, you know, somebody will introduce me. Hey, this is Mark Hershon. He does the cartoons for the paper. And they kind of look at me and they go, oh, yeah, I've seen your stuff. Nice. Yeah. They don't go. It's funny. It makes me laugh. They just go, I've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> sort of like, oh, I drive a car. I've seen your car. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. But it's, you know, to me, it's always, it's kind of a challenge that almost worse than podcasting because you never get any real feedback. Unless you piss somebody off, then you get a letter to the editor. But nobody ever writes the editor and go, hey, I really love the cartoon this week. (laughs) Okay. Um, As we kind of near the end, is there anything you want to plug or promote other than other than the podcast? We want to give you that opportunity. Oh, well, I don't, I don't think I have anything coming out uh, in the near future, but there is Succotash, the comedy soundcast, soundcast, and we're everywhere. As I like to say, uh, we're finer uh, soundcasters streamed and or downloaded. We're everywhere out there. Um, there are my cartoons in the Half Moon Bay Review. And I do write a, uh, I, I'm part of a group of writers for a monthly review column for vulture.com oh. called This Month in Comedy Podcasts. One question. Yes. I hate people. Oh, I hate people. Of course. I don't know if you can find that in print. That came out in 2009. I co-wrote that. $27. I co-wrote that with a friend of mine, John Lippman. And it's it's about dealing with idiots and morons in the workplace. But what little I've read of it, it looks brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, a, a funny, a book just came out that I was reading about called Jerks at Work, which is actually part of the subtitle of our book. Uh, uh, it's essentially it's sort of the same idea. If you've got idiots that you work with, how do you work your way around them as opposed to having to work with them? But thank you for bringing that up. What a rich topic. It is. It is. And, and we were fortunate enough to actually be printed in seven countries, okay. seven languages around the world. So I have copies in Portuguese and French. And there Spanish. may be more life in that than you realize. I think this moment may have come uh, with the pandemic. Thank you. I think you're right. <laughs> okay. We have less than So Mark, I just want to thank you for, for being a guest. Uh, My pleasure. And for your ongoing work. Good luck with your soundcast. I look forward to uh, publicizing it in the uh, the weeks to come. Perfect. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. A pleasure. Thanks, guys. Take care.